This is Tom Bernard. Can't get enough of sports talk with Phil Mackey and Judd Zolgad? Tune in to the new Tom Bernard Show podcast Monday through Friday as Phil and Judd join me to discuss the latest sports headlines and whatever else comes to mind. Just download the Tom Bernard Show app wherever you get your podcasts or visit TomBernardShow.com. It's another way to get more from me and Judd talking sports and having fun with Tom, and it's all at your fingertips. Download the Tom Bernard Show app now and join the conversation. You're listening to a Score North podcast right now, and if you're a business owner, so are your customers. In fact, I could be talking about your business right now, telling the tens of thousands of loyal fans about you and sending them to your business. Find out how you can partner with your favorite Score North podcast. Visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. Fill out the form, and we'll get in touch with you quickly. Once Phil, Judd, Declan, or others start talking about your company, you'll be amazed at how many fans start showing up. So visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. You compromise my men's lives, and I'll bury you out there. Oh, Mac, you're between the rock and a hard case. How's your boy? TCL on? is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. Enjoy more of the things you love with TCL. These two guys have Minnesota sports flowing in their veins. Mackie and Judd on Score North and ScoreNorth.com. Welcome to Action Movie Rewind Friday on Mackie and Judd where we will dive later on in the show into one of the great 90s action movies of all time, The Rock, with Nicolas Cage, Sean Connery, and Ed Harris at his finest. A who's who of stars at the time. 90s stars. Actually, and and this was sort of the end of the run for Sean Connery's stardom. Maybe Finding Forrester a few years later, if I remember right, but we'll dive into that. Jerry Bruckheimer, man. Jerry Bruckheimer, he loved his action films. Brilliance, brilliance. Uh, and we'll wrap with Ricey on the show today, but we've had this discussion teed up for a few days here, and we said, let's get to it on Friday. We need to talk about sports betting in the state of Minnesota. This is going to be kind of a state-of-the-state state address as it comes to where things stand with sports betting in the state of Minnesota based on two stories that came out this week. Number one, Canterbury and Running Aces in their efforts to try and get Horse and harness racing back into the mix. Obviously, uh, not able to bring in 10,000 people on a race day to watch and to bet. They attempted to come up with some sort of a plan, uh, a bill authored by state representatives that would have allowed state residents to bet online or by phone on races held in Minnesota through 2021. Well, that was shot down, and we'll get into that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I want to start actually with a story that came out from Louisiana, the Louisiana State Senate a couple days ago, approved sports betting in a 29-8 to vote. The same bill will head to the Louisiana House, and it may have even headed to the House yesterday. I didn't read the follow-up story, but they expected it to pass both the Senate and then the House shortly after, and then another vote this fall among citizens. But it looks like there's a ton of momentum for Louisiana to become, I believe, the 14th state to legalize sports betting. Which includes Iowa. Right below us. That is correct. And so here's my thought. I want to throw this at you guys, and then we can kick this around here and get to the Canterbury stuff. But if we're looking for ways to stimulate the economy, we're sitting here in the middle of a two-plus-month pandemic. We have no idea when it's going to end. We know that the the stay-at-home order is coming to an end next week. But even then, it's going to be incremental restrictions lifted from businesses, restaurants. Are, we're still coming up with plans for restaurants and bars and small business owners don't even know if opening a store or restaurant at half capacity is even going to be able to keep them open long term. So there's all these questions the rest of the year about how do we keep small businesses open and then other economic 
things that we need to deal with here. So I looked up how much, because I'm not the foremost authority expert here. I do have a background in poker. I love gambling, specifically poker, and I was involved in the poker world in the state of Minnesota 10 years ago. So I, so I have some knowledge, but I'm not going to pretend to be the foremost authority. Mm-hmm. But my biggest question was, for states that have legalized sports betting, how much tax revenue do states pull in? Like how much money, based on all the bets and and all the money being shaved off for tax purposes, what can states bring in to their tax pool of money to then distribute however and wherever they see fit, right, throughout their budget? New Jersey's first 12 months of legalized sports betting brought in $3 billion in wagers, $200 million in revenue for the sports books. Yep. And $36 million in tax revenue for the state of New Jersey. Yep. New Jersey's population is 8 million people. Minnesota's is closer to 5.5 or 6 million. And you could argue that New Jersey, because of Atlantic City, is more of a destination for sports bettors. And so, therefore, their numbers are going to be higher. I don't think you can expect, oh, well, then the first 12 months, if we legalize this in the state of Minnesota, we would then generate the same number of wagers and revenue and tax revenue. But instead of $36 million in tax revenue, what if Minnesota could bring in 15 or $20 million? And what if you could send some of that money to, you know, is it going to save all the businesses? No, but is it an easy turnkey way of generating a little bit more cash flow for businesses and for the state of Minnesota? Yes. How can you afford at this point in time, given what we're going to be up against for months, if not years to come because of the pandemic, how can you afford not to do this? How, how can you afford not to put a casino downtown? How can you afford to to use moral outrage of this might, oh, if we do this, it's Pandora's box. It's going to create a bunch of gambling addicts. It's going to be terrible. You know what? At this point in time, the people who think that need to shut up, sit down, go away, and need to be told we are in dire financial straits. I've always thought... That it's ridiculous that we have not passed sports gambling yet because, as we just talked about, it's been passed in, what did you say, Phil, 14 states. It's been passed in Iowa. People are driving, people who are sports fans and like to gamble in Minnesota are driving to Iowa to do this, okay? Uh, to, if you want to play No Limit Hold'em, if you're a poker player, you got to go to Iowa too, by the way. And I've all, and Stealing I, all of our And we have both said for quite a while that this should be something because it can be legalized in the state that is legalized in the state. But to me, that conversation is now gone off the table. The new conversation is, are you really stupid enough not to do this? You need the money. You are going to need you. You are going to need to fund programs. You are going to need uh, to build schools. You are going to need to do a ton of things and sports gambling. It might not solve every one of those problems, but guess what? I bet you that statistically the figures are going to come damn close. So I've gone from, well, this is sort of a prudish thing not to do to, are you stupid enough not to do this? I I would be, if I was in government in this state, I would be outraged if I had to sit across from people who were dragging their feet on any potential legal, so I'm not talking prostitution, okay, but any potential legal revenue source, which this is now, if you were to say, well, but we have to think about this. 
So hold on a second. You're telling me that we have to think about how we are going to bring millions and potentially eventually billions of dollars into the state coffers, which we desperately are going to need now because you have some high road moral obligation that you're trying to take about, again, sports gambling. Don't sell prostitution short, by the way. We're pretty early in this pandemic. Who knows how desperate we're going to get later on in 2020. I was wrong, by the way. I found this on the actionnetwork.com. It's actually 22 total states plus Washington, D.C. Okay. that have some form of legalized yeah. sports betting, and they have it in four different categories. So seven states, it's only legal in physical sports books. You can only place a bet if you walk into a casino or a sports book of some kind. Six states have full mobile sports betting available, app on your phone, however that works. Five have partial mobile betting, where I believe, like in the state of Iowa, I believe if you're 21 years old, you can bet mobily, but you have to establish, you have to walk into a casino first and foremost, establish that you're 21, sign up through their app or whatever it is. And then uh, five states, it's recently legal, but there's no betting yet because they've got to get their ducks in a row going forward. And then they actually rank state by state in different categories of how far down the line each state is, when they're likely to open up sports betting. Uh, So 22 states are legal right now. And then the next category is projected in 2020. There's three more states. It looks like it's Ohio, uh, maybe North Carolina. I'm bad at geography here. And like Delaware or something, New Hampshire, Delaware, somewhere in there. And then the next category is 2021. 15 total states are projected in 2021. So 22, so that would be 40. Minnesota is not included on that list. And you're go and you're going to at this point in time pass up that opportunity because of what? Why? And and long term here, it should be you can you can sign up on your app and gamble. And at that point in time, if you have a place to go do it, brick and uh, mortar place, that's great. If you don't, okay, that's fine too. I get all that. But to, to not take steps towards this just makes no sense. It's it lacks complete common sense to not be moving towards doing this, and now it lacks common sense to not be moving towards doing this as soon as possible. Yeah. And, the, and the main issue or the main hang-up has always been the, the tribal gaming conflicts in the state. Uh, the state's 11 federally recognized tribes, and I believe there are 18 tribal casinos throughout the state of Minnesota. Right. There's, I believe there's 18 tribal casinos, and then there's Canterbury and Running Aces, which are non-tribal, uh, and so they, they operate differently. But the state's 11 federally recognized tribes do not want expansion of gaming, which is an issue. And so even if you were to have discussions and make progress, it's very likely that you have to take a small baby step by saying, all right, let's let's open this up, but let's do it in the tribal casinos. But my question. And then they would take a cut. State would take a cut, et cetera, et cetera. My question for you is this. Don't you think that the circumstances of the last three months or so have changed how the approach should go? I, I like, do. Yes. Like I get I, Absolutely. Six months ago, and you know what? We've talked about this on our uh, previous incarnations of shows. Um, we both acknowledged that there would be issues in doing this and the steps might be slow. And we both want gambling, and especially sports gambling in the state. But I think we were both like, okay, here's, you know, I think at that point in time, you went through the list of the reasons why it would be a little bit tough. And we agreed that it would have to be a slow play. I think now, and, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts, that this has changed the game itself. I would hope so. I would hope so. And, and you know, and I don't have all the figures in front of me. If you go back to how much money could the state of Minnesota bring in, if we had some sort of, if we open this thing up 
and and if you really opened it up and you can make bets on games on your phone because that's really like that's where the real revenue comes in, right? You're sure. not gonna, you're not going to make a ton of money as a state just based on taxes if you force everyone to have to go to a casino. You'll get some, but really it's like people on their couch, couple beers in. All right, I'm going to put twenty bucks on the the under for the second half of this Colts Chiefs game or something, right? Yeah. So if, so if you were to open it all up. And maybe you could bring in $20, 25000000 million in tax revenue. Again, is that going to save everybody? Is that going to keep all of our favorite restaurants alive and all of our favorite retail places alive? No. But to the point you're making, Judd, we're looking for – we're just looking for ways to get things churning again, right? We're, and right. we're not just looking for that now. This is, this is definitely a 2021-2022 play here. And I think people – the opposition, whether it's tribes or whether it's – politicians or whether it's citizens mm-hmm. the main opposition is it's it's moral based right it's that's how i uh, the feel expansion of gambling that's what it feels like we, to me. you know we don't want to we don't want to go too far down that road and 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 my issue with that is twofold number one the fact that we have 18 casinos you can go to and you can play slots and you can play blackjack and you can play pie gow and you can play poker and you like you can you can go light money on if you have an addiction to gambling or if you have some sort of an issue with with bankroll management, right? Yep. The ship has already sailed. Like you can walk into, you can stumble your way into yeah. any county in the state, basically, and be within thirty minutes it, of a casino if you want to go place. It's the same as closing bet, bars. Right? Correct. We can't have bars because it's going to promote alcoholism, and that's terrible. The ship well, has already what? sailed. If you're predisposed to that, it's going to be a problem with or without that bar being open. And so then you say, okay, right, right, but. If you open up sports betting, it's just a whole new it's 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 it becomes so much easier because there's always sporting events on to which I say, have you seen how much money is gambled on sports in any given year before states started legalizing and regulating it? It's actually safer and better. Right. If there are regulations and, state by state. And you, need, and you need it now. So keep it like that's the thing. Why force a person who is going to. Gamble from his or her couch uh, to work with an offshore book when you could funnel that money into your state. At least make some money off of it. Right. Yeah. At least make some money off of it. I remember one time, uh, it was during the U.S. Open of 2018, and I placed a bet uh, at, on Bovada.com for the U.S. Open for Brooks Kepka to win, which I which he did. Of course you bet on Brooks Kepka. Of course I did. I, play, I always do. Major Opens are the best times to bet because I because it gets me more interested in golf. Brooks Kepka, by the way, why doesn't he have a hard seltzer endorsement? I don't know. Does he? Like he that, might. Oh, he does Michelob Ultra. Does he? Okay. The that's locale a, That's beer. like the most golf beer of all time, too. I'm um, going to climb a mountain and drink a case you know of what? Michelob Ultra. I'm sure it's fantastic beer. So it's all same. I won a, a good chunk of change on that bet, and I asked Bovada for a check, so they cut me one. But the check was technically a Canadian check. So when I went oh, yeah. to the bank to go cash it, it took like three different tellers, three different levels of security, and then what they yeah. had to do was was essentially they put cash into my account but they like marked the check. If it bounces, they're going to remove the cash. It it, it cleared. It took. It, it worked. But it was so many extra hurdles just to get this money into my bank account. I mean, dude, like, so I one time. I don't think we've talked about some of this. So I used to play online poker for like. Doug Judd knows this. I used to play yep. online poker for a living. I I didn't make millions of dollars, but I paid I paid rent for like three years playing online poker when I was like last year in college, and then the first couple of years out of it when I had a part time job over here, was hustling over here and playing online poker to make money. And Black Friday hit. Black Friday is is not just known as like the shopping day between you know after Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Black Friday in the poker industry is the day where online poker got shut the bleep down 
oh. in the United States in 2009, I believe it was. It was like fall of 2000, or it was spring of 09 or 2010. It's like 10 years ago now. It's when online poker got lumped into games of chance and essentially all games of chance. You used to be able to 15 years ago, you go on party poker and they had like a blackjack wing of their website. And you could <laughs> like you could be playing four poker tables and then just be like hammering blackjack and stuff. And these were all offshore based websites. And it was kind of the wild, wild west. It was the early days of the Internet, early 2000s. And the United States came in and said, all right, we're lumping all these online gambling games into the same bin. And they're all illegal until we figure out what to do with them. Games of chance. We just can't like we, we can't have this not be regulated. And so. Instead of coming up with a plan to categorize each one of the games, poker being much more of a game of skill than an online slot machine or a, or a game of blackjack where the house has an advantage. In poker, you're playing against other people. You're not playing against the house. It's a game of skill. There's luck involved. But the United States came in and said, instead of figuring this out and maybe finding a way to regulate it and tax the bleep out of it so that the country can make money and states can make money, we're just going to shut it down. So what happened after that was... Each of these offshore sites like Full Tilt Poker and Party Poker and Poker Stars, they gave you short windows to withdraw your money or figure out what to do. And then they just erased the money from your account. I lost $2,000 in a Party Poker account 10 years ago because I didn't like I didn't know how to get the money out. The, the you know, banks were you couldn't just like transfer to your bank because it was illegal to transfer money from an offshore poker site to a bank like. It just got shut down on a Friday. I have friends that literally moved out of the country because they were professional poker players. They moved to Europe, Mexico, Costa Rica oh, to go play? just to go continue their profession. <laughs> wow. Um, I have one friend who who left all of his belongings in his apartment in northeast Minneapolis in a storage shed and just like, it's like I don't need any of this stuff. Like, it's just in a storage shed. I'm out. If, if anyone wants this stuff, it's yours. Like, this is my job. I need to move on. Where'd he go? Um I actually think he I think he moved to Hawaii and stopped playing poker altogether to like go get a different job. But but like the grand the grand point here is for years and years and years and now in the state of Minnesota, it it, it sounds like we're going to be lagging behind rather than just coming up with ways to regulate this industry right. and use it to our advantage and bring in extra revenue for the state. It's like, no, nope, no, we can't do this. This is morally well, and, and I, and I understand. wrong. I understand the dilemma and the problems. Although I didn't agree with them previous to this, but this to me should change it completely. And if we are going to look, if the last three months or so have taught us one thing, it's the fact that government, for the most part, is guessing too, right? So quit guessing and use common sense. Yeah. And you know what? You're going to get pushed back. I don't care at this point. The Canterbury. We got to get to this Canterbury thing. I'm going to read just the first three or four graphs from this story from uh, StarTribune.com that came out a couple days ago. With horses set to arrive at Canterbury Park this weekend, track officials are making plans for a shortened racing season. But Minnesotans who want to wager on races at, at the Shakopee track might be out of luck. And it's like most people go and I will I'll put five bucks on the yellow yeah. the logoed horse. Cool right? name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that horse has a cool name. Here's five bucks. Like that's what people do, right? A bill authored by state representatives would have allowed state residents to bet online or by phone on races held at Canterbury or running aces through 2021. That provision has been stripped out of an amended version of the bill. Horse racing in the United States is currently being run without spectators across the country. And if fans are not permitted at Canterbury and running aces harness track in Columbus, uh, Minnesotans would not be able to bet on the races under current law. Betters can currently bet online or by phone using money in accounts managed by licensed providers, but only for out-of-state races. Uh, Yeah. Which means 
You can bet on a horse race in Tampa or San, is it Santa Anita out in California? Anywhere else but Minnesota. But you cannot bet on a race at Canterbury. So, all right. So let's think about this for one second. How does this even work where where this is not um, pushed through immediately to help your local track? And I'm, you know what? It's Canterbury. And I'm sure the, the races are fine. They're, they're certainly not great, but they're fine, right? So we're not talking about this, this tragedy that you can't vote or can't uh, bet on these great horse races at Canterbury. But it's in your state. So I'm sure some people would gamble on those races in the state. But yet they can gamble on those races in any other state but here. Correct. Like, like this is this is one of, in a span of months now, in which there have been a lot of things coming from leadership that has made no sense. This is probably top 10 for me as far as, are you really this stupid? So here's the next paragraph. Andrew Offerman, Canterbury's vice president of racing operations, says wagering from home would have been, quote, the perfect social distancing solution for the track's fan base. You think? But in a packed legislative session on a tight timeline, uh, one of the representatives said that the proposal needed wide support to pass, and it was doomed by opposition from those who viewed it as an expansion of gambling. So they basically said, listen, we have a million things to do right now. This is a super packed legislative session, and there's just too many people that continue to oppose any sort of expansion of gambling. But isn't it an expansion of gambling if you are taking away all of the gambling because people but, cannot bet on, but people are not able to go to Canterbury. This goes back to the previous topic. You have no other recourse right now, if you're the state, but to expand gambling. Like you are, you're faced with, let's see here, my choices, column A, I could expand gambling, which has some pitfalls, but okay. Or column B, let's go broke. Are you picking column B? I'm with you, man. I'd really prefer, you. I, you, you know what? I want to save uh, Ted and Mary and Lloyd from gambling. I really like them. So I'd prefer yeah. that everybody go broke. I mean, how st- – it's just not stupid. So I, I, I almost wish that – like, oh. I wish that one of us disagreed. I wish there could be a fight about this, but we all agree. And, maybe, you know, listen, if you do disagree with us, send us a tweet at Phil Mackey, at Jay Zilgad. You can email me at pmackey at scorenorth.com. But just one more note on this last quote here that, hey, in a packed legislative session and a tight timeline – it, there's just there's there's too many people that view this as an expansion of gambling, and so it's just it's a bigger fight than we can have right now. To which I say, all right. So we've already allowed gambling on these races. If you step foot into Canterbury running aces, if you drive your ass out to Shakopee right. and you walk in, you can bet on those races all day long, all summer long. Have a great time, right? Yep. And if and if you have a problem, it's not like there's someone standing at the door there. Like, no. are you okay? Are you okay? No. The did, ship, you, did you just lose like your mortgage? The today? ship sailed on those yeah, people. It's like, too late. Yes, you're like, right. Like thousands of people can walk in, place bets on horses, and no, like, it's not like there's a counselor at every corner being like, "All right, are you? Is everything okay?" Like everyone's an adult, right? Everyone makes their own choices. Everyone walks in and 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 bets ideally within their means, right? And so you take you take all those people out of Canterbury in the physical space and running aces, and you say, "All right, well." What we would love, because these people can't show up anymore, the people that would have showed up or the people that would have interest, we'd love to find a way for them to still be able to bet on these races and so we can keep this thing flowing and keep people entertained, et cetera, right. et cetera, right? And and so my question would be, to like on the semantics of, well, that's expansion of gambling because now you're allowing it to take place remotely or mobily via phone or online in some, in some form. Is there like... 
an extra 200% of people that would be like, wow, I, I never would have showed up to the racetrack to bet on these races, but now I'm going to bet $50,000 over the course of a summer via phone because I can. But, like, but it's, it's not expansion of gambling. It's also somehow more silly, stupid, and worse than what you just said. Because if I, so if you're worried, if you are taking the moral high ground, I do not believe gambling is good. I have already approved or been part of an approval process for you to to have the opportunity to gamble on horse races in Tampa. But what I'm saying is expansion of gambling is helping my state. I just, it, it becomes more and more evident, and this is not across the board of everybody, because there have been some people, I think, in government who have made some very good calls. I think Governor Walls is in a no-win situation, and I think given for what he's trying to do in a no-win, he has worked his ass off and done a nice job, okay? But I think what we have seen, and this is just part and parcel, this is just a fragment of that, Phil, is what we have seen since March 12th or 13th or so, is how clueless a lot of people in government up to the very top truly are. And, and so so you can't make a case of this is why I'm doing this. Now, now you know what? If your palm is being greased by somebody, I almost respect that more. But if you are really taking a moral high ground, if you really think that you are doing anyone a favor by doing that, in this case, when I'm saying I'm not going to allow the money to be spent locally, but it can be spent nationally, you are simply one thing. You're a moron. Yeah. It's, uh, like it's, it's, it's fascinating, it's, man. But, but you're an idiot. It is fascinating. I, I just wish that we would get to the point. I wish we would stop with these just like knee-jerk stances and have actual conversations here. And it just seems like we've been spinning our well, wheels in the same spot for don't you think, though, there, maybe two decades. Don't you think, though, that there are people who are who are acting out against this and seeing this as expansion of gambling to protect other interests? For sure. That they're not going to talk about? Absolutely. 100%. So, and with those, I, I mean, I don't respect them, but I almost I almost get that more if you're a greedy SOP than I do if you really come to me and like, no, I'm not getting a thing. I just don't think it's good yeah. to have gambling that could help my state. Yeah. All right. So we will step off our soapbox here. Thank you for indulging us on Mackie and Judd, the podcast. And when we come back after a brief pause. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Broadway. This soapbox housed the most awesome scum in America. Ladies and gentlemen, I, Ranger Bob, cordially invite you to become inmates of Alcatraz. Temporarily, of course. And I, Phil Mackey, invite you listeners cordially to find out about Federated Mutual Insurance Company and all the things Federated can do to help your business during these tough times. And on the flip side, Federated just wants to thank you business owners. You are our community partners, our neighbors, our families, and our friends. And when you need Federated, they are here to help you with trusted resources at federatedinsurance.com. You can also get a hold of your local marketing representative by going to federatedinsurance.com. And and now that we have even more changes on the horizon, next week, the stay-at-home order being lifted, and then the next three weeks after that, plans in place to open more and more types of businesses. Are you ready? Are you ready from a communication standpoint, from an HR standpoint? Are you ready to maybe roll out a multi-phase plan of your own for your business? Do you need help with those things? That's what Federated is here to do. Federated has been around for over 100 years, based in Owatonna, Minnesota, helping business owners just like you. And during these uncertain times, your team at Federated has kept a strategic focus on policyholder service specifically. What has not changed 
is their commitment to providing risk management to help you prevent injuries and save lives and peace of mind that comes with putting your trust in a company rated A-plus for its financial strength. FederatedInsurance.com. At Federated Mutual Insurance Company, it's our business to protect yours. You can also ride right now. If you're a rider, it's always sunny. Declan oh, yeah. Goff. Yeah, a quick thank you to DennisKirk.com for supporting Score North and Mackey and Judd. Yesterday I went on a little stroll, maybe with a claw in hand, maybe with the water. I'm not sure which one it was. On All foot, I know, though, right? On foot, in a nice little blender ball. <laughs> But driving down River Parkway with a bunch of motorcycles, motorcyclists on a nice ride on a beautiful day, it's a great time to get out and ride. DennisKirk.com is a Minnesota-based worldwide retailer of parts, accessories, and apparel for avid bikers of all kinds. Whether you ride a Harley, Cruiser, sports bike, dirt bike, or any type of motorcycle, they have what you need. And through May 28th, Dennis Kirk is offering 0% interest for up to 12 months. Over 160,000 products in stock and ready to ship today. DennisKirk.com not only offers a huge in-stock selection, but also guaranteed best prices, fast same-day shipping, and a satisfaction guarantee. They truly are the best in the business. Order by 8 p.m. and get it tomorrow. $89 order ship free. DennisKirk.com. Order today. Get it tomorrow. My incendiary systems can burn hot enough to consume VX, but they're still in the test phase. It's not operational. Hummel knows this. We are dealing with one smart son of a bitch. What's it going to take to equip a flight of F-18s with thermite plasma within the next 36 hours? An act of God. Welcome to the party, pal! Action Movie Reviews with Mackie, Judd, and Rami. Get to the chopper! Yippee-ki-yay, mother... Welcome in to Action Movie Rewind. The Rock. 1996... Sean Connery, still looking good later in his career. How old was Sean at this point? Do we well, know? He's still alive. He's like ni- he's in his early nineties now. Oh, wow. So he would have been like late sixties, mid late sixties. Okay, in nineteen ninety six. Yeah, you had Ed Harris, who was I, I wouldn't say he was one of like the best nineties actors, but he was in a lot of noteworthy stuff, Milk Money, all kinds of stuff in the nineties, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and Nicolas Cage in the middle of a great stretch <laughs> of action movies. Playing wildly different characters in this movie versus Con Air. Here's the summary. Nicolas Cage stars as Stanley Goodspeed, an FBI chemical weapons expert, handed a unique assignment. Francis X. Hummel, Ed Harris, who's an insane Marine Corps general, has taken 81 tourists hostage on the abandoned island prison of Alcatraz. He and his men are threatening to bomb San Francisco with deadly gas that could kill tens of thousands unless $100 million is paid in war reparations to the families of servicemen killed in covert operations. Goodspeed is teamed with former British spy John Patrick Mason, Sean Connery, the only man to ever escape Alcatraz, as well as a Navy SEAL team. When their military escorts are ambushed, it's up to the odd couple Goodspeed and Mason to break into Alcatraz and stop Hummel. Just to to summarize the summary, basically, General Hummel... Crazy general guy corrals a group of 20 bitter Marines, takes 80 citizens hostage. <laughs> so they, they break into a military weapons depot of some kind, steal a bunch of ammunition and deadly gas rockets and packets. Mm-hmm. They call the Pentagon and threaten to launch deadly rockets into San Francisco unless they get the $100 million from a military slush fund. And they're going to distribute to the families that they think deserve it of these recon Marines who uh, were basically swept under the rug. He offers to pay each of the rogue Marines on his staff, quote-unquote, a million dollars each to help them carry out the mission. 66% on Rotten Tomatoes. Let's start with Judd. 
What was your favorite part about The Rock? Well, first of all, uh, so Con Air was released June 7th of 1996. Dude, this is a legendary action movie run. The a Ro- legendary the Rock, run. The Rock, gentlemen, came out June 2nd. So a little less than one year later, June 2nd, 1997. Dude, okay, When did Face Off come out? So like Nicolas Cage, we're talking about an extraordinary run of summer blockbusters. Yeah, he had back when people went to summer blockbusters. He had so he had Leaving Las Vegas in 1995, different type of movie. He, so he had Leaving Las Vegas. The next year he had The Rock. 97 he had Con Air. Later in 97 he had Face Off, and then he had City of Angels in 1998. Plus, Gone in 60 Seconds in 2000. That's a remarkable Dude, run. Nicholas Cage, which is why he does not have to act <laughs> if he doesn't want to these days. No. He still does sometimes, but. My favorite part of this film, I have so many thoughts about this film. Dude, we've got like, all this kinds of be, space to explore, like, baby. This, you might have to tell Roycey that rapping with Roycey might be a few minutes late today. You got it. This could be Strap a strap in. This could be a college class on. <laughs> be, because, look, last week's um, action movie Rewind Commando, just a great, great action film. Yeah. Mindless. Uh, basically one or two star players, but that was it. It was a Schwarzenegger uh, uh, special. It was great. Well, this one made you think a little. This one also had, in my opinion, too many stars for what I want from this series because it had to have too many. Um, it's clear that they got these people and then thought, oh, my God, we've got to have a, a, a Connery storyline, which, by the way, was great. But we got to have the Cage storyline. We got Ed Harris, too. Let's write sort of a storyline for him. They flushed out the backgrounds of all these characters. Yeah, exactly, which is why which is why I've got a pace of a play problem here, <laughs> and it went too long. Uh, do you want my favorite scene or just my favorite takeaway, though? I would say give us your favorite takeaway, and then we'll get to f- favorite scenes later. My favorite takeaway was the fact that they could basically find an excuse to blow everything up without any re- reservation. They clearly had, I think of all the films that we have um, broken down so far in this segment since we started it, I think this one clearly, if you go back and look, has the biggest budget. Because, like, the explosions are pretty good. Dude, they, they actually, it doesn't look cheap. One of our followers, when, when we tweeted out we were going to do this movie early in the week, someone tweeted out an, a story article or something that part of the budget for this movie was essentially like, restoring parts of Alcatraz. Okay, yeah. They did a lot of the filming, apparently, at Alcatraz. Have you guys ever visited? I was there as a kid one I have time. Not. Uh, not Alcatraz. I've been to San Fran. Okay, oh, yeah. yeah. Recently. I've been Ama- to San Fran. Amazing city. But, but, yeah. Con- but Con Air, so Con Air had a ton of explosions and special effects, and a lot of them struck me as being fairly cheap. Like, oh, that doesn't look good. And I thought, as I watched Con Air, that that was because that's what, now 23 years ago or 24 years ago? But in watching The Rock... On Wednesday afternoon, after I got home, because I I figured, you know, why not? Um, The special effects and explosions actually look pretty good. And I think that's a Bruckheimer thing as well. So I guess my favorite takeaway was, despite all the star power that we need to get back to, they had the want and ability to use special effects, and blow up everything, including a lot of uh, San Francisco, with no reservation whatsoever. And your point about character development here versus last week's Rewind, Commando, Commando had so many unanswered questions that they didn't even (laughs) apologize for. Like, what happened to Arnold Schwarzenegger's wife? Like, did him and the gal, Cindy, wind up being together? Was there an actual love? Like, They just said, you know what? Very minimal storylines. It's a... 
It's a brutal force Arnold Schwarzenegger with his daughter that he loves that they showed for three minutes, and then it's just like, against, get to the point. Against his out-of-shape, fat old friend who now right. hates his guts. Th- this um... movie is like, all right, we need... We need we need three different story arcs. We need background. But I'd like on to talk about guys. that eventually. I'd like okay. to. I'd like to get to the development of the stars, who, in my mind, clearly probably said, "I'm Ed. Ar- I'm Ed Harris. I took this role. How about a little more script for me?" For sure. All right, Declan. What was your favorite part? I love The Rock. I love Sean Connery. I loved his development of like. I don't think they did a great job of like. Exp- maybe I wasn't listening, but how he was in prison. What he got? What he had oh, to do to get it. into prison? What was it? They did it. He he turned out to be what ex British ops. Yeah, he was a Brit. He was, he was essentially a British spy from thirty years okay. ago. They gotcha. captured him. They captured him on either no charges or like they tried to get information out of him and he didn't give up information. So they just like held him captive for thirty years. I basically thought what his arc was really cool. Of like, oh, there's this crazy prisoner who looks like Gandalf from Lord of the Rings with his beard <laughs> and long hair. He gets cleaned up and cut as. Like formulates this rope to throw the guy over. Oh, that's great! And, and the great and just like his his uh his skills of getting out of prison and getting out of situations was hilarious. Like it, it was also very strategic and cool. But I loved how Sean Connery basically was exactly the the X factor in the movie. Like it, the, the initial scene hilarious where he has thirty years after he escaped from Alcatraz, he still has the timing down in that boiler room area where they're tr- they're like trying to he tunnel rolls their way through in. It. He rolls, he's like, and it's like fire and yeah. like things that could squash you and stuff. And like these Navy SEALs show up and they're like, "How do we get through this?" He goes, "Don't worry, I've I've still got the timing down." And he goes <laughs> he goes through and they thought they thought he was gone, but he hits the button to stop it. The chemistry thing though is. Hysterical to me because the first half of, of the film, when you're unclear and you think he's like a crazed maniac killer at first, he acts like he's just completely nuts. And then they sh- sort of explain, oh, no, no, here's, the, as Phil said, he was held hostage by the United States uh, or he was held by the U.S. for 30 years. He and knows what he really actually, happened with the JFK, with the JFK assassination. Thing. And, and from that time on, they softened his character completely. For sure. It's like he's like, I, I like poetry. And so they totally, they didn't rewrite the character, but they changed the character's demeanor completely from what you thought he was to, oh, no, he's actually yeah. a pretty good guy. So this is a good segue into my favorite takeaway from this movie, my favorite part of this movie. All right. So I, I start, and just to like double check it, I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to write out what Sean Connery's character is before I get to my headline takeaway from this movie. So Sean Connery is a British operative from the early and mid 1960s a trained killer who cuz he's cuz all right 1996 right you go back 30 years and and he was a, a british spy in the early to mid 60s then he got captured for 30 years so we can assume that like the peak of his british spy career was like early to mid 60s 65 66 then he gets captured okay right who knows where all the bodies are buried mm-hmm. including what really happened with the JFK assassination and and Roswell New Mexico so he's got all this inside information. He's been operating below ground level, so to speak, in all these circles, fighting crime and maybe doing terrible things. He gets captured by the U.S. military but refuses to give up any information for 30 years, staying strong to his British spy roots. The Rock is a James Bond sequel. 100%. Sean Connery, the most legendary James Bond of all time. The first ever James Bond. Yep. From 1962, I want to say, through, if you count them, one he did, he did, well, he did kind of an offshoot one in the early 80s, but he was the iconic James Bond, British spy, 007. 
from the early mid-1960s all the way into the early 70s. Then Roger Moore takes over. And there's so many little things in this movie that allude to... It's like it's almost like Bruckheimer was teasing that this is a sequel to a James Bond movie. But he even dropped a line at one point, the, an exact line that he dropped in Diamonds Are Forever in the late 1960s, one of the great Bond movies of all time. I can't, I'm, I'm trying to think of the, the context, but he said, but of course you are. When one of the women in, in Diamonds Are Forever said what her name was, and it's some, like, all, the, all the Bond women names are like Pussy Galore or whatever. Like They're all very tongue-in-cheek names. Right. And, and one of the women introduced herself to James Bond in one of these movies, and Connery just responds with, but of course you are. Right. <laughs> and he used that same line in The Rock. So they definitely were like teasing, hey, th- this is what James Bond would be if he got captured 30 years ago. And then all of a sudden was like unleashed on some mission. He'd be sure. able to just knock out the mission, take like out all these rogue Marine guys. <laughs> the Rock is a James Bond sequel. That's good. That's a. That's probably dead on. <laughs> so, all right. What is what is your least favorite part about The Rock? And then we'll dive into all the other odds and ends. Um, mine was easy. Way too many storylines I didn't need yeah. because I wanted it to what be I wanted it to be an hour fifty and I could have cleaned that up. If I could go go back now with Jerry, Directly I could Judd. sit down and I could take out parts easy. Okay. It did take an hour Key. before they actually got to Alcatraz. Yeah. So. I will give you a, a a relatively within the scope of the film, small but key waste of my time and my day. And Stella's too, because the, the dog sap I mean watched it. Um Connery's daughter, the whole scene. Oh, yeah. Unnecessary. They're trying, to, they're trying to show that he's a human who no, cares. No, right, but all he had to say, all he had to say when Cage when Cage is like, my wife's coming to San Francisco, and or my girlfriend's coming to San Francisco, and she's pregnant, was, I have a daughter, too, in the city by the bay. <laughs> That's all I needed. I didn't need this whole thing with this useless actress scene with her I, coming. I, I, and, you need and, layers. Well, no, and they play. They, the problem was they tried way too hard because I didn't care to to make you think that he was a terrible person and then soften him. I could have. You could have cut that scene out in a heartbeat. It would have taken at least, I think, five to six minutes off the film. So it was the development of characters. And then the secondary part off this is there were too many stars. Ed Harris is great, but that's a whole different film. Like the Ed Harris character could have been any, it could have been Judd Zolget. It could have been any (laughs) schlep who you want to kill. Um, Ed Harris's role. He's He's unbelievable. He's great. And, I could have written a film off of his character, but it would have been a different hour and 30 minute action film in which he probably kills the good guys. Okay, so so I actually would have if you're if you're forcing me to remove a backst for the for the length of time issue, right? Hey, listen, we got to get this thing under two hours. All right. It's an action film. You got it. We can have these three guys in the movie, but you got to kill one of their you got to kill off one of their backstories like one of them is just going to be in the movie. Yes, sir. I actually would have killed off Nicolas Cage's backstory. I don't think we needed now the opening like the opening five or ten minutes of the movie was essentially detailing like the most roller coaster emotional day in the history of mankind where right and I, where, I got where he too. gets the, the first ten minutes of the movie are like Stanley Goodspeed and his coworkers almost die because the care package that they were sent with deadly gases was like they were kind of joking around oh what's this they open it up and it's like. Oh, it's deadly and, gases that are going to kill you within five minutes his, if you don't snip the wires. And his buddy in in the Idiot. in the cage is it or in the chamber yeah. chamber, chamber waves the waves the doll hand and the gas com- comes out. Okay, just quickly too. Can you guys explain one thing? 
Why on earth did his did the guy he's with in the chamber live? Two people I would have killed and probably dramatically, that guy's face should have melted off. Yeah. Because he he's like, my suit's and burning by the up. Way, Kill him. If that guy another way to cut time off the movie, Kill if, him. if that guy dies in that scene, you don't need the the weapons gathering scene that shows the the rogue marine dying from the same gases, just yes. like, hey, right off the bat, these gases kill people. This guy's going to be sacrificed. And the other guy, the other guy, and you, you played a soundbite at some point in time, the other guy that you've got to blow away in glorious fashion is Ranger Bob. <laughs> I mean, he's got to die an ugly, grizzly, I'm a fat guy. You always kill the little fat guy. This cell block housed the most awesome scum in America. Yeah, that guy has to be. Did, definitely did you, has to be. Do you not want him dead? Do you not want him dead? 100% has yeah. to die, yeah. So so Sorry. so Goodspeed finishes he he cuts the wire in time no one dies then he gets home and sits down lets out a sigh like my god like what a day this was and his girlfriend says Stanley I'm pregnant <laughs> and then proposes to well, him but, just, like, he, but no first Goodspeed says think I don't ever want to bring a child into the world and then she's like I'm pregnant yeah <laughs> Well, you could have cut a bad all day that. playing guitar and drinking whiskey for the last eight hours. Wow. That sounds like a that's a good combination of Cage and Connery. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> both amazing. All right, Declan, what was your least favorite part about the ride? I didn't like how Ed Harris's character turned at the end and how he like how he basically bailed on the on the missile plan. It's gonna ding him in the bad guy standings at the end of this episode. Yeah, when we I, rank the villains, I, I don't Got mind all soft on us at the end. I don't mind a bad guy realizing the error of his ways. I just didn't like how they went about it. I mean, he he gets the cold feet when the Pentagon calls, and I mean, the, the whole the whole premise is we have deadly gases. Yes, that according to their research. One of those gas rockets, if launched into San Francisco, would kill seventy to eighty thousand people, right? Or sixty to seventy thousand people. Correct. You can kill a stadium full of, of civilians if you launch one of these in. So they're saying, listen, we got four of these things. We can kill like a quarter of a million people with the push of a button. Yep. We just want a hundred million dollars for these soldiers that we feel were wronged. Yep. And then we'll we'll be on our way. Now, of course, like they're literally sitting on a trapped island. Like, how would they how would they? Let's say the, the money gets wired. Like, where do they go? Right. Well, he explains right, well, now how we're going to get on get a out. boat and go back. But no, he he explains what he wants along with the money to escape. Well, like the whole thing was pretty was pretty well documented, almost too well because it's like at that point in time you're like I don't really care how right. you're, like you're not getting off the island. I know that you're all going to probably die. But he winds up so he winds up getting cold feet when he tells the Pentagon, listen. We need all this stuff, and they say we need another hour. Yeah, and he starts to get some 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 of his little psychopath comrades start pressuring him, saying, "No, launch one of the rockets." Yeah, especially no, they can't. They're not going to get to extend <laughs> that the, little white guy is the typical, and you want him dead so bad, it's not even funny. I don't know what this clip is, but we're going to play another clip. A couple hundred years ago, a few guys named Washington, Jefferson, and Adams were branded as traitors by the British, and now they're called patriots. In time, so shall we. God willing. In less than 48 hours, you will evacuate this island in gunships under cover of hostages and VX gas warheads. Your destination, a non-extradition treaty country. You will each be paid a fee of $1 million for services rendered. But you can never again set foot on your native soil. Can you live with that? So, yes, so he agrees to launch one of the rockets. Yes. He says, all right, let's do it. But then he goes in and redirects the rocket to a safe place that doesn't kill anybody. Right. The, his comrades come back in. These little weaselly, yeah. you know, steel jawed comrades. Hey, what's the fire? What ha- 
who, who what, what happened, blah, 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 blah. They confront him, and he says, we bluffed, they called it, the mission is over. And then one of the great lines of the movie is Weasley Comrade Guy says, who said anything about bluffing, General? <laughs> but And that's when, the, that's when the... So the the organizer of the whole thing is like, guys, but we're not going to kill 250,000 people. Declan's this is right. a bluff. But but Declan's right. Like, how can you get to that point and then be like, ah, uh, yeah, they didn't buy it, so we're not going <laughs> to yeah. do it. And, and by the way... So lame. And, and by the way, you, you are with all of these basically, what, Vietnam vets who you know are going to kill... Like... Your option is not, ah, it didn't work, I guess I'm going to jail. It's, no, you're going to die. <laughs> so you've got to kill those people. Or you don't do it. Yeah, it's you can't get cold feet in that spot, man. I'm sorry. Not to mention, by the time that happens, I believe they had already killed the Navy SEALs. Which brings me to my least... About, much, this can is we my, talk about that scene? This is my least favorite part about the movie, okay? Let me set this up. Oh, wait, this is going to be my favorite part, I think. <laughs> I love this part. <laughs> All right, so... So we literally have... We I have cannot a, do that, sir! We have a Navy SEAL team that is set, and it's like 15 or 20 guys. Like, this yeah. is, these are the best, these are the best, like, undercover military soldiers, <laughs> you would think, in the entire world, maybe. Like, maybe in the entire world, all right? Oh, my God. Sorry. And so, so these dudes make their way to Alcatraz. Yep. Underwater, they're sneaking up to Alcatraz. And and they wind up getting completely ambushed by General Hummel's team of rogue Marines. And I'm like, how is this possible? So let's go through this, all right? So the scene where they get to the boiler room part of Alcatraz and they reach the fiery obstacle course part, Connery is the one that gets them through that because like, they brought Connery in because you're the only one that's escaped from this place. And then he can open the door, yes. How do we get into yep. some sort of like a, a back entrance and sneak in and overtake this island? And, mm-hmm. and his role was to do that, and then he was basically, that, all right, we don't need you anymore. You just get us to a certain place, all right? Well, somehow they get to this communal shower area where right. like prisoners would go and take a shower. And they've got these little like, these little, uh, like snake cameras to go up through the like the drains to see what they're doing, but they wind up making noise and getting caught yep. as they're coming up through this this shower drain, and so you've got a team of like ten or fifteen Navy SEALs in this shower area, yep. and twenty or thirty rogue Marines with the high ground up above, and I'm just wondering like. How can a group of 15 Navy SEALs so incompetently go into this and just get slaughtered, like, in an instant? It doesn't make sense. Okay. All right. Like, they like they literally didn't even, like, put up a fight. This is my favorite scene in the entire film, and here's why. <laughs> the very, the birth of action movie rewind, the very existence of this, of this segment is built around scenes like this. Unexplainable and just gratuitous violence, which is what I love. And I love the scene because it's so poorly yet adroitly done where the the guy who is, is the commander, where Ed Harris's character says, you know, put your weapons down. This doesn't need to, to happen. I cannot do that, sir. And like right there, you're like, yeah, he's going to die and his whole team's going to die. I cannot give that order. I cannot give that order. Stand down now. I cannot give then, that order. And then in typical in typical fashion in films like this, the shooting is set off by something like slipping and falling, and yeah. the guy's like, "Let's waste these guys." And then, <laughs> and then, but what's so great is okay. So, so the commander of of the actual army Navy SEAL team is in the middle of the action. So he's like in the middle of 
the shower room. He's surrounded by all the bad guys who start shooting. Now, this guy would be hit and dead instantly, right? But instead, as they shoot the scene in Bruckheimer fashion, too, like this is probably everything he does. Quick cuts. Quick, exactly. He lives for a good three minutes to five. And like he's like circling around and looking around, and they're like it's it's like, and he's not getting hit by bullets until he does. In which case, they do this great job of documenting him falling down. The whole thing was, I absolutely said to myself, "This is why we're watching this film." It is a great scene, and it doesn't make any sense. It makes at no all, sense, but it's but, a great scene. But that's what's so great, and and then and then the last part that I absolutely adore is Navy SEAL guy who's down uh, below still with with Connery and Cage, who are below ground, and that's why they don't get shot, right? He's like, I'm going up. And Nicholas Cage character, no, you can't. You're looking at And he's, I don't care. I'm going up. Let me. And, of course, comes up and immediately gets hit in the head with a bullet and killed. And, and, and it's a death. You're like, yeah. I wouldn't wait for him to die. So the other thing in this scene, I really, like, really like that. Scene. This was the first scene that they planted the seed of General Hummel not being as uh, like General Hummel. Yes. As the fire is happening five or six different times, he's yelling, cease fire. Yes. Cease fire. Like they sort of planted the seeds that he didn't really want to kill anybody. <laughs> by the way, he's he's sitting. He's basically sitting down covering himself so no one can hear him. Yeah. He, he didn't he didn't <laughs> want it to come down to this. But but here it is. Um, all right, other observations from this movie that stand out to you guys that we should get into. I've got a million, by the oh, way. Oh, so. I, I, I do too. The end, the end scene. So, so the Navy SEAL team got wiped out, right? They're all dead. Like they sent in their best men, men who I'm sure were scheduled to fight, barely got know, a shot off, barely yeah. got a shot, and got <laughs> wiped out. And and the team back in San Francisco knows this, right? So the end scene when it's just. Goodspeed, who's a nice character, but if you're the army, you don't really care that he is alive or dead. And Connery, who you clearly, who they don't like and hate, they're like, are there any survivors among the hostages or something? And and Goodspeed's character is like, you know, there are no casualties. And they're all like, yay! Your whole Navy SEAL team got wiped out, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they give the yay no hostages. <laughs> so in other words, Ranger Bob, who should have been killed too, Jerry. Ranger Bob lived, and you're happy. And your Navy SEAL team, who I would assume you spent millions of dollars training, just got his Phil said wiped out with no comeback. Yeah. How, how does the Pentagon in that situation? So as you play this out, right? So there's 80 hostages. All in, they're all like they've all been locked into these Alcatraz jail cells, right? Yes. So as the Pentagon plays this out, and they alluded to this briefly at the beginning of the movie, let's say this standoff plays out for several hours. Yeah. Like, hypothetical question. Like, what do you do? Do you, do you call the families and say, uh, hey, we had an issue with the, <laughs> the boat that was supposed to take the like, – they're all fine. They're just waiting for a new boat or something. Like, I kept thinking about the logistics of this because this would be a huge news story. And then all of a sudden toward the end of the movie – because the the president has has come to terms with I have to make a decision now. Now that our fifteen Navy SEALs have just been completely bowled over by these rogue Marines. Who weren't very good, by the way. We have two <laughs> we have two decisions. What we have to make one of two decisions. We either allow them to send rockets into San Francisco and maybe kill like seventy thousand people at a time. Yep, yep. I got Which would too. which would buy us time to like maybe send another team out there to go fight them. Yeah. Or we just bomb the island yeah. 
and we kill the 80 civilians and Goodspeed and Mason and and then all of the rogue Marines. And we just like everyone that's on the island, sorry that 70% of you are just innocent bystanders. We kill everyone. Right. Imagine being a tourist hanging out by the Golden Gate Bridge and you see these fighter pilots fly underneath the Golden Gate Bridge over to Alcatraz. Stanley Goodspeed's got the green smoke signifying, hey, like... We're all, well, everything's good here, right? And I love how this little he's twerp, on his knees. He's a twerp at the start too, right? I'm a scientist. By the end, he's this like Con Air guy again, N- Nicholas Cage with the they are waving the green things. He's got the green smoke. Yeah, and a plane comes by, and one of the guys. So at the last second, guy in Washington D.C. says, "Abort! Abort! Abort!" Because they see the green smoke, and one guy accidentally launches a bomb onto the island. Okay, so just imagine, if you will, because they didn't explore this. Imagine, yeah, if you will. The reaction across like CNN, Fox News, MSNBC. Yeah, well. Oh my God, the military just bombed Alcatraz. There's all these people probably watching from the shore in San Francisco. And meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, my favorite sort of subtle part. A 49ers game is being played at Candlestick, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to which to which the one bomb goes over the stadium, and they're like, you know, hey, it's the 49ers and Raiders coming up. <laughs> Some problems on Alcatraz, but we'll just we'll worry about those later. It's football night in America here in San Francisco. I just oh, love how the bomb goes over Candlestick, and they're like, oh, hey, what was that? The other thing I want to bring up, too, there are some amazing quotes and one-liners oh, in this yeah. movie. We're going to play one here in a second, but... Uh, but Sean Connery is just full of one-liners and great stuff throughout the movie. It's just like a Bond movie. You know, go figure. But at one point, he tells Nicolas Cage, "Losers always whine about losers always whine about their best. Winners go home and bleep the prom queen." That's a great line. Great one. And then there's this one when Stanley Goodspeed, <laughs> nerdy scientist guy, is uh, trying to fend off rogue, crazy military guy. And this interaction takes place. I think we got started off on the wrong foot. Stan Goodspeed, FBI. Uh, let's talk music. Do you like the Elton John song, Rocket Man? I don't like soft. Oh, you don't. Oh, yeah. Well, I only bring it up because uh, it's you. You're the Rocket Man. That was my favorite scene. <laughs> easily right my easily my favorite scene. He's such a weird, corny. Like, there's no. There's no way to deliver that line and have it not be super corny. Right. Hey, Stanley Goodspeed, oh, um, yeah. let's talk music for a second. Oh, do you? Okay. Uh, do you like the uh, Elton John song, Rocket Man? So, no, I don't like soft-ass bleep. So Cage spent the entire film, though, I felt like going back and forth between nerdy Nicolas Cage and tough guy. For sure. And so they like had him transitioning it to, I'm Stanley Goodspeed. What's going on? I'm Stanley Goodspeed. I'm going to kick your ass. I mean, it's like, but... um. Yeah, it was it was an experience. I would say that I would have liked to seen it at 150 or so. That's fair. That's fair. But um That's fair. Oh, oh, and also, how about the I think it was the initial FBI agent that they sent uh, to talk to Connery's character? Is he not one, how did he not die? Two, is he not the definition of the meathead FBI guy who's like goes in and he's going to get his answers? Well, that, it was that such actually, a 90s. That, that's a great point because the other, I, I do think ultimately The Rock is a tongue-in-cheek James Bond sequel. Yep. The other thing The Rock is is Die Hard on a Prison Island. For the for that reason, you had you know you have FBI yeah. guy who's kind of an idiot. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. A terrorist group takes hostages, 
and then spends most of the movie trying to sniff out where the rogue good guys are left over and then threatening to blow stuff up to get what they want. All key ingredients to a diehard movie, diehard and Alcatraz. Uh, and then one other thing, the end scene where Goodspeed kills the last rogue marine. I thought that was the best kill of the movie. Where th- so these little these gas oh, balls yeah, are like yeah, they're like the size awesome. of tennis balls, and he shoves one in the guy's mouth, punches it down his throat. So the guy just like ah. you know, his throat just like in- is just incinerated. And then because he's got gases on him, stay on the good speed. He has to stab himself in the heart with the huge needle elixir or whatever the, the hell it is, enormous needle that right. you have to put in your heart. And then the best part is he gets up and he's fine. <laughs> And he lets Sean Connery's character go because he then goes and sits on a rock himself and's like, yeah, okay, I'll Amazing. see you later. Amazing. And then Connery tells him to go to Kansas to find the JFK. When did we as a country, when did the fascination with JFK's murder sort of pass? Because I feel like in the 90s it became a very big thing. It was Again, huge in the 90s. Uh, yeah. Costner did the JFK film. I'm still very interested in it. I am too. But I feel like there was some point in time, 2000-ish or so, where... I don't know if it was an age thing or what, but it fe- it it felt like that was a huge storyline, and it's really intriguing. It's, it's stuff, actually, and now we're sort of past. It's it. the thing that I want. I want to know like what the movie's explanation was for what happened to JFK. Because uh, like Cage at the end, Nicholas Cage figured out what happened to JFK at the end of the movie. Yeah, because Connery's character sent him mm-hmm. to a church in Kansas where the evidence was like taped to a pew or something. Yeah. Which like why is JFK? Oh. <laughs> I got one for you too. Okay, so if Connery's this threatening character, right, like very concerning guy, and at that point in time, they want you to believe he's a complete psychopath, do you really take him to the roof of a hotel to cut his hair? Yeah, that seemed like a mistake. Like, would you be he like... He instantly throws the one guy off of the side of the roof. Please don't kill me, but do you like your haircut? <laughs> yeah, I love that Oh, and that's too. another guy you got to kill. Yeah, not necessary. That guy's got to be not killed. Not necessary. But who's going to kill him up there? It's not going to be Connery. Connery's got too much of a heart. He's only going to kill also, the bad guys. He's also, not going to kill the good guys. when they were going down the escalator and just plowing through yeah. all of right. all the hotel employees was hilarious. Yeah. All right, I th- a couple more questions to wrap up Action Movie Rewind here. Could this movie have gone an extra 30 minutes? I think we all agree no. It probably oh. could have been 30 minutes less. Yeah, I, yeah. Could have, some stuff. I could have taken 30 minutes out. All right, definitive bad guy rankings. So in the in the six movies we've reviewed so far, the rankings are the, the number one bad guy is Cyrus the Virus. Number two is angry terrorist Ivan from Air Force One. Number three is the corrupt senator from Hard to Kill. Four is Chong Lee, the villain fighter from Bloodsport. Yep. Bennett in Commando, the, the fat mustache guy who looks like Freddie uh, Mercury. What? what? Plus 150 pounds. Yeah. You cool Minus the Bennett. HIV. And then, and then Bodhi from from uh, Point Break is a great character, but just like wasn't really a bad guy by the end. Right. I, I got to be honest. I put General Hummel last on this list because in the end, he didn't have the guts to actually pull off the terrible things that he was setting up. Like all throughout the movie, this guy was getting cold feet on killing anybody. Right. Including like the Navy SEALs at the beginning and the civilians. So I don't think at any point he had the guts to really go forward and pull off his mission. So therefore, cowardly bad guy General Hummel is last on my list. I'm with you. you guys disagree agree. with that? No, I'm with you. I'm with you. And and that's why I think that if it had been me, I would have gotten somebody else to play that part. Because Ed Harris is too good for the role that it ended up being, which was sort of this wishy-washy, I can't really kill people, despite the fact that I'm like the most decorated Vietnam veteran of all time. Um, So I actually find fault with the film in picking Ed Harris, who was really good to play that role. And that wasn't even, like, I 
The real bad guy was probably the guy that Cage kills last at the end, but he wasn't developed as a character at all. So, yeah, I would say as far as bad guy rankings go, this was the most disappointing film in the sense the bad guy wasn't even, there was just not enough there. He had a heart of gold, really. Heart of gold. Yeah. Ceasefire! Ceasefire! On a 1 through 10 Seagull ranking scale, where do you guys rank The Rock? Go ahead, Declan. I would say... I'd say a six. Okay. Like, it's it, it just, it's it's very Michael Bay, Bay-like, Bay right? I mean, there's explosions, and it's a humongous budget, but, and the storyline has its has its faults, but I don't think it lived up to, like, crazy action hype for me. Okay. I thought there were scenes that were good, but I, I didn't think it lived up to, like, your typical action movie buildup. I think Declan's exactly right. In fact, I'm going to give it a five. Wow. Oh, like, okay. it's not a, wow. it, it's, it is a, it's a pretty good and probably... For the '90s, really good movie, but there's just a lot of things that Commando was just perfect. I don't care about the storyline. I want death. I want <laughs> violence, and I want it as quickly as possible. I want a microwave society type of uh, film, and this was not it. So, so I, I'm a little higher on it than you guys. It is, it is not Con Air. Con Air is the peak of Nicolas Cage's action movie run in the '90s. It's a seven for me. It's a good movie. It, run, it it's a little slow to get into the action parts. And uh, it's a it's a good solid watch. It's a movie that if it's on TV, I'm probably going to tune in. Whatever stretch it's in, I'm going to flip it on and see what happens. Did Cage have to then? So since Con Air was released in June of '96 and The Rock was released in June of '97, did Cage have to do something to get himself smaller? It's a good question. I don't. It's probably easier to do that than to go the other way for what he looked like in Con but, Air. I mean, he was he was chiseled in Con Air, right? He was. And he there's was no up. way that he was yeah. that big. Unless there was uh, some hanky panky with cameras, could have been no way that he Could've was been. that big. A lot of, a lot of low, like a lot of low angles in Con Air, like Nicolas Cage walking out with hair flowing and the camera. Down Declan's from- right, right though. The chase in, in San Francisco is just glorious. So there it is, action oh, movie rewind. Last thing: How did the guy driving the cable car not only yeah, yeah. live, but his cable car goes? Ass over tea kettle at one point, and he's fine. It blows up, and then it, and then when it comes to rest, he's like, "You mother!" And it's like, "Dude, you're not alive!" And everybody, <laughs> and that's the one thing. Anybody that they they wanted to have lines, they didn't make look worse after a clear like near death explosion experience. Like Connery and Cage, they don't like they're like ducking through a tunnel and there's fireballs coming at them and they like go below the water avoid it get up and don't look like their hair's moved yeah it's a uh, it's it's the wonder of 90s action movies yeah, really no there's there's more where like, that came wouldn't from you too. Have, but like wouldn't you have done something to make them look a little bit more disheveled after they basically should have died Listen, Judd, there's a lot, of, a lot of unanswered questions here, okay? I love this it, segment. It is Declan's turn to choose him. This is your yeah. first ever time choosing a movie. I think we said give us like two or three samples, unless you're 100% sure on the one you want to pick. Okay, I have a couple. One of them coming from a brother, Liam, who's a big fan of Mackie and Judd and Score North. Okay. He recommends Predator. Wow. So yeah. that's it's a, it's action, and it's a little sci-fi, you know, and, and I guess you can maybe say a, a tiny bit of horror, but it has Arnold Schwarzenegger in it. Yep. It's from the 80s. It's under two hours. It's okay. 147. Okay. What else you got? I also had Speed. Speed was my other option. A little bit more on brand with it, but also a little longer, by the way, 156 on runtime. Yeah, but so, got just under two. Very but important. Just under two. So I would say, are those your two options? Those are my two options. I would vote for, I think we should do both at some point because we just did a Schwarzenegger movie. Uh, that's what I was going to say. I would vote Speed for this one. Okay. I'm Speed 
as well. And because we, we did Keanu, what, three films ago now? Yep. So, yeah. Yeah. Let's save more Schwartz and Egger. And then we're still short. So we're still without Stallone so far. We, is have, that not, right? we have not done a Stallone. We've not done yet. Stallone. Yep. So I say we do speed and then I'll pick next week and I'll try and I might do a Rambo. Okay. I feel like we need to do Stallone soon. Don't you guys? I agree. Stallone is a, Stallone's a bad Like I've got more movies. Seagal, more Keanu. The other one is, uh, is I, I think we need to do in the next month or so. Roadhouse for sure as well. Roadhouse. You know, I, if we're going to do another Schwarzenegger movie, I might throw Kindergarten Cop in the mix at some point. Yeah, well, you know right. what? Just like Declan, you could be overruled. <laughs> uh, okay, so speed. Your Luther Brookdale Toyota helps us power Action Movie Rewind every Friday, whether they like it or not, quite frankly. And do they have speedy cars? Uh, they, they have pretty fast cars, but they're more known for their safety features at Toyota. Well, Keanu doesn't like that. And interior technology. Uh, that's the, that's what I would probably point people to when it comes to these new Toyotas. And if you're wondering, all right, what's you know, I, I was interested maybe a couple months ago in a new car. I don't really know where things stand with this pandemic. Well, Luther Brookdale Toyota has announced a couple different things when it comes to safety precautions. Number one, they will actually bring a vehicle to you. You can test drive it, and uh, and and you can do it in safe conditions. Number two. They've got 90 days deferred payment on both new and used vehicles and 0% financing on 2020 Camrys, RAV4s, and Tacomas. Uh, From a service standpoint, you can still bring your vehicle in. They have a no-contact system, including electronic checkout. 694 on Brooklyn Boulevard and LutherBrookdaleToyota.com. Hi, this is Chris Howard, host of Plug Door Chris Howard. University of Michigan QB J.J. McCarthy makes bold predictions but doesn't fulfill them, and Ohio State kicker Noah Ruggles misses an opportunity to etch his name in Buckeye lore. Fans love their teams and the players, that is, until they don't. When it comes to finger-pointing, you'll find no greater antagonist than the fan. Why? Because it means more to them, or so they believe. As a former player, nothing angers me more than armchair charlies accusing the teams of overlooking opponents or blaming players for providing bulletin board material. But leading up to the game, the fan is the one talking the most, boasting the most. When the team is winning, it's a lot of we talk. But when the team loses, it turns into they lost. You will never know what those moments feel like because you didn't put in the work to earn those feelings from those moments. That's the great thing about being part of a team. You win as a team, you lose as a team. We cry, we console our brother, we don't point the finger, we go back to work, back to the early morning workouts, the hill sprints, back to the bloody noses and broken bones. Why? Because it really means more to us. Hi, this is Chris Howard, host of Plugged In with Chris Howard. BetOnline.net is your number one source for sports betting info, stats, news, and analysis. Get the latest odds and trends for every professional and amateur league out there. From football to basketball to soccer and esports, we've got it all at BetOnline.net. And if you love sports podcasts, you can find those at BetOnline as well. We're always the fastest and easiest way to get your betting fixed. And don't forget BetOnline for NHL, MMA, boxing, and golf. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more. BetOnline, where the game starts.